Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for October 18th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you on on this uh, mid-fall evening. And uh, coming up in about 20 minutes, we are real excited for the second time to have Evan Scrimshaw of Lean Toss Up. If you are listening to this and you have not been to leantossup.ca, I highly recommend it. They do political projections uh, on all levels of um, American elections, even down to the county level. And then they also do, of course, their home nation of Canada, UK. They even were doing some projections on um, New Zealand this past week, which we had elections for. We're going to stick to America with a little bit of Canada. Um, unfortunately, I have time to get into the New Zealand elections. But when Evan comes on about 20 minutes, we're going to talk about this, and we're excited to get to do that. But until then, we've got some other topics to discuss. And the first one is last Thursday, or you know, about four days ago. There was supposed to be the second presidential debate, and that did not happen because Donald Trump contract, contracted uh, COVID-19. He seems to have gotten over it, probably through a lot of the help of the uh, brand new to the to scene Regeneron, which is not even seemingly available um, to the American public or anywhere else in the world on any kind of wide basis. And that seems to have uh, cured, if not masked, uh, his symptoms. And so – they canceled the debate because it was in the 14-day window. They then converted uh, Joe Biden, since he didn't have COVID, to a town hall on ABC News with uh, or ABC with George Stephanopoulos. And then Donald Trump wanted to have an event as well, and so they also had an event on NBC, CNBC, and MSNBC. Um, before we get into anything that happened there, the controversy surrounding it, three channels, Tim. You know that three channels had to have outrated just ABC by itself, right? Wrong. <laughs> I know. Wrong. Uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden had about uh, two million more viewers on live television. Way, 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 way more viewers on uh, those particular networks, YouTube channels, uh, and, and and more. Uh, viewers that were streaming it in general on the internet. I'll tell you what, David, I hope that everybody got a chance to turn back and forth a little, just for comparison, because uh, uh, Trump was on for an hour uh, and Biden was on for an hour and a half. You say, wait a minute, that isn't fair. Well, Trump got the same hour that Biden got when Biden was on NBC. That's why he got an hour. ABC has their own rooms. Um, and, and just for comparison, though, I, I hope everybody got to do that. This is Joe Biden's type of offense. Uh, you know, um, an, an, a nice crowd of people standing up, asking questions, personal interaction between the candidate and, and a voter that, that, that he's talking to. That is uh, Joe Biden's wheelhouse, and it's clearly not in Donald Trump's comfort zone. I, I think his personality, he's too combative. He doesn't like tough questioning. He reacts negatively to it. Unlike Biden, who, when pressed by, you know, the viewers or the people there in Stephanopoulos, it was was very calm. It, 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 it's his thing. Um, I guess, David, that Savannah Guthrie, though, is the new right-wing uh, boogeyman, right? 
Well, Tim, don't you know every time you watch the Today Show, um, I've actually gotten to see a week of that live when I when it was in Atlanta in '88. I think that was Jane Pauley and Bryant Gumble. Um, but when you uh-huh. think of that morning show, which includes cooking segments and and human interest, and sometimes they have live music, don't you just think no matter who the hosts are, man, those are pit bulls that'll just uh, uh, rip the leader of the free world apart, don't you? No. <laughs> oh, really? No, okay, like just me. Not, um, not I mean, really. that, that's basically what he's saying, and, and that's not to diminish um, Savannah Guthrie. I mean, but this is somebody that does a morning show, not, you know, the hardest-hitting journalist on 60 Minutes or even Chris Wallace. And, I mean, she held his feet to the fire, and he couldn't handle Savannah Guthrie. Well. And yeah, good for Savannah Guthrie to be in such a good interviewer. She might actually get to do a debate um, in the future. You know, given that uh, you know she did a better job than really even either of the debate moderators have done to this point. Uh, but but that kind of just rings hollow. How do you complain about the host of the Today Show being too tough but, but, in a town hall format, well, Tim? It, it, it's in it's in tough uh, uh, Trump's mo. Uh, when things don't go right, of course, it's someone else's fault. Uh, he's uh, to, to to project this tough guy image. He is the biggest whiner that I have ever seen in my life. Wham, wham, wham! You're treating me bad. How about this instead? How about he staggered around with some basic questions that he should have nailed the answer to, like the white supremacy thing. He should have known that was coming. He should have known it was coming, and he should have nailed it, and he just couldn't nail it. Uh, I I don't know why he can't get a handle on stuff like that. Don't his people prep him for these sort of things, or is is his preps like everything? Yes, he just really doesn't listen to people. Uh, But see... He did nothing to help himself is the biggest problem. And another day was turned, uh, another page of the calendar uh, was by, and he simply is missing opportunities to either reset or change any trajectory. And I think this trajectory is turned into a trend. And if I'm right, Trends are very hard to reverse when they've been going on for this long, barring something just remarkably amazing happening. And at this point, uh, considering all that's behind us, I just cannot see um, what what that could be. Trump should stay with those big rallies, David, where he speaks. Uh, he's the star, and no one questions him. But don't don't you think Trump just blew another opportunity for at least well, a reset? Well, he definitely did. And, Tim, one thing you've said kind of segued into my next point. Um, you talked about don't – you know, does his people not prep him? You know, a lot of times you hear when people are going to school, there's tough teachers, there's easy teachers, there's teachers in between. But you know what? When you don't study, all teachers become tough teachers. All tests are tough because you don't study the material to know the answers. And I don't think Savannah Guthrie's a tough teacher. He just didn't know the material, so when she asked him to tell you know, about the facts and about the situation, he had nowhere to go. Catherine, what's your take on the town halls Thursday night? Well, I didn't watch any of the, um, of the president. I saw some clips afterwards, but um, I agree with you both. I think that what I did see and what I heard was, uh, I just don't, I don't think that format is good for the president. He um, cannot be, uh, reined in, and mm-hmm. he 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 can't he can't be um, uh, he, he wants to control everything. And when people are asking him questions, he doesn't want to answer the question. He 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 just can't. You know, 
he's he's just uncontrollable in that kind of environment. On the other hand, I don't know if you've gotten to uh, Joe Biden yet. I, I'm sorry, I was a little bit late. Um, I thought he did very well. I thought that uh, that format was good for him. Uh, a couple things that were a little strange. I thought it was weird that he had to keep looking up at people, that everybody was above him. I thought that was a little awkward, but I thought he did very well. He um, answered well. He was, um, you know, there were a couple times when he probably should have been clear in his answers, but that's okay. You know, that, that's the nature of the beast, but I'll, I'll let uh, – I'll let you get back to – I don't know how, if you wanted to talk about Biden yet or not. Well, we kind of were talking about both. But, Catherine, you said that the, the this format, the town hall, American people having questions of their elected leader or someone that is wanting to be their elected leader is not good for him. Well, I would argue that if it was like a – you know, the, question, the uh, candidates could ask questions of each other or it's a panel – or they're seated. There's different um, environments in which it might be better or worse for a candidate, and that could be, you know, like some teams play better in rain and some play better in cold. You know, that's fine. But if you're an elected leader in a democracy and you can't handle taking questions from the voters, is that not disqualifying for you as an elected official, Catherine? No, I don't think it is. I mean, there's plenty of look at our two our two U.S. senators. They don't do town halls. But mm-hmm. if they do town halls, they should be able to. They, they should be able to, and they won't questions. do it. Yeah, but they've been asked, and they don't do it. Well, I mean, and then that's disqualifying for them, and I, I would argue. I think the, the town hall is the essence of our democracy, and if you can't answer the voters, the citizens of the democracy, to me, I think that may be disqualifying for an elected official. What do you think, Tim? Uh, it, you know, this uh, we, we talk about Donald Trump as if he's like a normal elected official, yeah. and of course he's, he, he's not. Donald Trump is, is the reality TV entertainer guy that feeds off of uh, – Either total make-believe, like in reality television. Boy, there's a contradiction in terms, if there ever was one. And, and and the adoration of the crowd. He feeds off the frenzy of the large crowd. One-on-one, Donald Trump is just, he's not good. He, he's got no. the wrong personality to do this. He's the bull in the china shop type. He's sat around all night with this scowl on his face like he did at the first debate. Uh, What is that about? Can't you even train yourself to occasionally lighten up and smile and like You you mentioned before, uh, David, when we were talking about the vice presidential debate, and you said that Kamala Harris's strength is that she has the ability to look in the cameras on a personal level with the American people that the vice president didn't quite seem to have. He was a little more robotic. I don't think Donald Trump has that ability to get to one person on a personal level. And Joe Biden, he's old school. That man has done this type of politics all of his life. He is terrific at it. And plus, I believe Biden really believes it. He's really sincere when he's talking to just one person. Like he told the one guy that didn't seem to get the answer that he wanted. He said, hey, you know what? I'm serious on this. Uh, talk to me after this thing was over. And and I'll be darned after it was over. They kept cutting back to the auditorium there where he was. And he stayed there for about 45 minutes answering questions after, for all he knew, he was off the television and stuff, just talking to those few people that that remained in there. And and I'm sure he hit everyone that wanted to say something to him. That's the kind of guy he is. Donald Trump would have got up and left, and I bet he did immediately when his town hall was over. 
Yeah, there's a book uh, that Chris Matthews wrote over 25 years ago. I guess it's where his show name came from called Hardball, and it lays out retail and wholesale politics. Um, and it talks about some people are good at one, some people are good at the other. There's those rare individuals good at both. Um, you know, LBJ was excellent at retail. Ronald Reagan, excellent at wholesale. Bill Clinton was the one that could probably do both very well. Um, Joe Biden, he's mm-hmm. probably better at retail politics. Um, you know, Barack Obama better at wholesale. Um, that kind of thing. And so I think – that may have come through there. Well, let's talk about the controversy moving into this, and, and we've really spent some time on this topic. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump, I believe, was still in the 14-day period to be around people, so that within itself was controversial. Then some people, I think, said, oh, well, since NBC's related to MSNBC, they just shouldn't have this. I guess seemingly not even for COVID, but just because it was Donald Trump. Um, the first one, I think, is very valid. I mean, if you say, look, you've got to be COVID-free for this many days or we're not going to have the town hall or any event. And I want to take this into a larger point later on. Um, that they didn't stick with that. Uh, Catherine, what was your thought about the event even taking place in that frame? I thought it was pretty rotten of um, NBC to – to um, to run that, to decide to do that event, knowing that it was, you know, was going to coincide with Biden on ABC, and that um, he had refused to do the debate. I thought it was uh, a little uh, opportunist, um, and I agree with you. He shouldn't have been there because of the because of his uh, COVID status and that it hadn't been 14 days and all that, but. Obviously, it was on NBC, right? Yeah. It was on NBC, NBC, MSNBC, and CNBC. It was on three different networks. Biden's event was only on ABC, and it outrated it on one network. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I'm sure that it was sort of irresistible to have the president um, live on TV. You know, it's kind of irresistible for any network, but I, I did think it was um, a, a, a poor choice for NBC. Yeah, well, let's um, – and then, Tim, same kind of question. Um, should this event happen within the constraints of COVID and then that they did offer – well, actually, let's put a pin in that because um, we need to move on a little bit close to 720 to our guest. Um, welcome back to the Kudzu Vine from Lynn Tossup. Evan Scrimshaw. Welcome, Evan. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Um, well, we're glad to have you back on. And, and what I want to do is I want to start off really talking about your model um, and kind of, you know, what the work y'all been doing. And, and let me kind of just ask a global question to kind of get us started. For a while now, even the last time we had you on the show, um, your model is the most bullish, not only on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but the Democrats in general. And you're also, when you read you on Twitter and different things and your articles you put on Lean Toss Up, you're also very confident. And I don't mean that as a criticism at all. I mean, if you have a belief, stand strong on it. Um, why do you believe that your y'all's model is more um, confident for Democrats, and then why are you so confident in it? Well, so we're confident in – I am confident in our model because our model is really good at this, and that's an arrogant statement I'm aware. But we have called Canadian elections and Canadian provincial elections and U.S. governorships and the U.K. We are – it's the same It's the same principles of this, and the thing is whenever we get a good poll from the New York Times Siena or any of these pollsters that, that, that you know, will poll uh, you know, cell phones – with with live callers, we're getting results that look like the model. Might be a point off here, might be a point off there, but we're getting results that look like the model. And the thing is, the model realizes the major shift in the election, which is white voters with degrees and without degrees are moving to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and they're moving for Senate candidates, and they're moving in the House, and all of these things are happening. And we were the the ones who said, this is happening, this is what the reality says this is what we're going to project. Whereas a lot of people were like, so the polls say 
Joe Biden's up by a ton, but we think it's actually not going to be as big of a lead. And the problem is, is that none of the tightening that a bunch of people expected, none of it's happened. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And everybody's kind of moved towards y'all as this thing has um, progressed. So um, if it keeps on this trajectory, I think it's going to be kudos to y'all. Uh, I would, I would hope that I, I would hope it from a selfish perspective that um, if Joe Biden wins by the kind of results Joe Biden is currently projected to be winning by, um, that yes, I would hope that people would acknowledge the fact that we have been here since God. I was on the show in late April, and I've been saying, and we're saying the same thing as then. Yes, we'll, we'll we'll give you points for consistency. Now I'm going to stay consistent with something else, even though we probably should be asking about every uh, nook and cranny and race in the um, uh, uh, United States. I cannot resist, since you're a Canadian, having a Canadian question. And um, when I saw this a few weeks ago, I immediately thought I got to have Evan on and I got to ask him about this. Your Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, gave a speech to the U.N. It was very pointed, but it never mentioned anyone by name. Um, I'm going to end up asking another part to this, but do Canadians by and large believe that that um, address to the U.N. was directed at Donald Trump or American voters who will be deciding the job status of Donald Trump? It was a speech to make Justin Trudeau look good to Canadians who want to feel better than American voters because we never have elected someone like Donald Trump. Um, It was a speech that was ostensibly for an international audience that was very much about making Canadians feel better about the fact that, you know, we hold a lot of the values that Trudeau spoke about um, and sort of drawing an implicit contrast of we are not them. And hopefully they will rejoin us in the sort of land of, you know, normal and right-thinking people. I'm not saying that's correct, but that's certainly how Trudeau was trying to make it seem. Because we live in a country where 80% of our voters would theoretically vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. So he's trying to. It, it was a speech for sort of partisan political uh, gain in Canada because at the same time, Trudeau was almost forced to an election. So. Yes. It's funny in your answer. Um, it reminds me of about 20 years ago when the WWE tried to turn Bret Hart heel, and the whole thing was he would give speeches about how America was better than Canada, and it really didn't work because people, I think, see America and Canada as far much uh, too much alike. Um, well, you know, I, I just I just found that interesting. Um, how have the Canadian uh, citizens received that speech afterward it sounds like maybe some are kind of seeing through his motives um i mean yeah i mean the the thing is that trudeau is a a lot of people don't like trudeau but they will vote for his party anyways because he is the 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 best of of the options available um but trudeau does not have a sort of like he he's a his, the, the love for Trudeau is might, might might be considered a mile wide, but it's an inch deep. And a lot of people just roll their eyes when Trudeau does his, like, Global Canada, Captain Canada, like, oh, we're so much better than the Americans, just, like, routine. We, he does it he does it 12 times, like, he does it six times a year. We've all heard this speech before. We all know what it says, and we all just kind of roll our eyes at it at this point. Yes. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pass this thing on to Tim. He'll pass it to Catherine with questions about uh, your model and the American elections. Tim? Good evening, Evan, and thank you for being on again with us tonight. Uh, Obviously, much, much, much is going on, and so I'm going to jump around to to a couple of states here. Um, One thing I noticed in your model is that you uh, presently rate Joe Biden's chances of winning, of all places, the state of Arizona at 94.6%. That's that's a lot. Is that state in your mind basically off the table now for Donald Trump? If he doesn't manage to recover his position widely and nationally, yes. Because it's Mm -hmm. a state full of... It's a state full of white retirees and Hispanics, and we are not particularly sold that Joe Biden – that the, that the much-vaunted Joe Biden-Hispanic problem is actually real. Um, 
I, I've written about it for the website if you want my sort of more detailed thoughts on that. And then white retirees, again, seniors are Joe Biden's best group compared to Hillary Clinton last time. The high-quality mm-hmm. polling we've had out of Arizona is consistent with, you know, six, seven, eight-point leads from Monmouth and New York Times Siena in recent times. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're quite confident when the good pollsters agree with us. Well, you, you have a similar dynamic all the way across the country in the state right below us here, uh, Florida. Uh, you, 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 as many are doing, is rating Joe Biden as, as pretty much a clear favorite in the state, and the polling has been consistent, three, four, five points, uh, seems like for months now. Uh, what happened in Florida? Did Donald Trump support among those older voters you just addressed collapse in Florida, or or what happened yes. there? Yes, uh, it, Joe Biden, the older Joe Biden voters, is doing huh? much better. Joe Biden is doing much better with white retirees in the like in the Panhandle. Like he'll win, he'll win Jack, like he'll win the county with Jacksonville in it, um, and he won't mm-hmm. lose the Panhandle nearly as badly as Hillary Clinton did. Not a great accomplishment, mm. but you know, losing all those seventy thirty and not eighty twenty is an accomplishment and in a state that's as close as Florida's gonna be. Or you know, once a lot of time, it's quite important. And then he's doing a lot better in um sort of the the I four corridor, um gains with educated, um, degree holding whites. And that combination mm-hmm. is meaning that even if he is gonna do slightly worse, or maybe not even slightly worse, um, than Hillary in the southeast corner of the state, uh, Miami-Dade, Broward, um, it's not quite as important because he's getting the results he needs out of the rest of the state. So the southeast corner isn't going to be quite – it's not going to his, – his weakness with Hispanics and with, with Cubans in the southeast corner isn't going to be quite enough, we don't think, for him to lose. And we have mm-hmm. him up, I think, four and a half points there. Yeah, four and a half points. Mm-hmm. Gets us right. all the polling right now. Now, you know, of course, Florida has 29 electoral votes. And 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 I I, I want to ask you this question so that our listeners un, understand how important this is. Do you see any way, any path to an electoral college victory for Donald Trump without the state of Florida? No. Amen. There is no path. <laughs> there is no path for a Republican without Florida. Um, Democrats have, have a path without Florida. They have the Michigan, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, and then hold everything Hillary one path. Right. Republicans do not have a path without Florida. Uh, now I want to turn to the U.S. Senate and the state uh, to my east here. You give Lindsey Graham, a, shall we say, slightly better than even chance of holding his seat. Why might he survive when in when other multiple Republican incumbents uh, uh, appear poised to lose, even in similarly constructed red states? Georgia is a bit whiter. Or sorry, South Carolina is a bit whiter and a bit uh, mm-hmm. a bit less. Uh, there's not quite there's there's not a city as big as either Atlanta or Charlotte and the Triangle, um, in South Carolina. Um, the there's there's growth. It's definitely trending blue. It's just not trending blue quite as fast because you don't have a population center quite the size of the Atlanta metro. Um, and I mean I think I mean I personally think Graham's going to lose. Um, I slightly disagree with the model on this one. Um, most of the polling is mm-hmm. sort of just a toss up. Um I mean we have we have Graham winning, you know, fifty seven percent of the time. We have Her- Jamie Harrison's opponent winning forty three percent of the time. It's a toss up and we'll need a lot more polling in that race in the next just under two weeks or just over two weeks to, to before we have a good idea. But he's he's definitely in danger. Um he could he could hold on, but I wouldn't be confident either way. Okay, I want to ask you about one more um office holder and then I'll send it over to Catherine. Um, I've I've come to watch this guy a lot because I watch a lot of political TV shows at night, and he seems to be a popular guest on all of them. That's uh, Dan Crenshaw, a congressman uh, from over in the 2nd District of Texas. A lot of people know him by that patch he wears on his eye. 
And I was absolutely shocked to read that you said just yesterday, I believe, that you think he might lose his seat out there in Texas. And, uh, you know, he's seen by many as a rising star in the Republican Party. And I I sort of figured he might be uh, safe. What is going on in his district that's got him in such trouble? It's the Houston suburbs. And the Houston suburbs are trending left compared as fast as the Atlanta Metro, right? Those uh-huh. suburbs are right. those suburbs are moving left because the problem was is that there's it, it's a, it's a fairly diverse district, but the thing is, all the whites voted for the Republicans, all the non-white voters voted for Democrats, um, uh-huh. and so Crenshaw could survive. But the problem is, the white voters are now not are the specifically those with a, with a college degree are trending left in a real way, mm-hmm. and he might uh, the GOP wrote. The GOP drew the, drew the map in Texas in such a way that everything looked like it would hold as of 2010, 2011 when they drew the map. The problem is Texas has moved so far left in the last decade that the gerrymander has sort of become a dummy manager, and it might fall and just wipe a whole lot of people out. The other thing is Crenshaw, not exactly a moderate, and he is a rising star in the GOP, but he's a rising star in the GOP mm-hmm. because he's willing to say some um, controversially conservative, deeply conservative things those yes. people can sort of think they're not the most popular in his suburban trending district. Mm. And with that, I'm going to send it to Catherine, who's going to probably be asking about the state we're sitting in. Catherine? I was wondering when we were going to get to that. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's my job. Hi, Evan. It's nice to have you on the show. Uh, you know, we're all anxious to have this. These next two weeks are going to be nail biters, I'm sure, for all of us. Um, so Georgia, I saw your piece about David Perdue's um, unfortunate inability to pronounce Senator Harris's name, and um, it just leads me to ask you what what's gonna ha- what do you think about these Senate races in Georgia? Do you think we're gonna win both of them as Democrats, or do you think it's really the um, Purdue seat that's the most at odds? So I think David Perdue is in more trouble than um, Kelly Loeffler or Augusta Collins, whoever wins the runoff. Um, I'll explain why I think David Perdue's in trouble, because John Ossoff could very easily hit 50% on November 3rd, and then everything is fine. Uh, he's just a senator. Um, the the polls of the state where Ossoff is doing badly are mostly because you get John Ossoff at like 77% of the black vote, uh, high, high numbers of black undecideds. Those voters are voting for Biden. They're going to vote for John Ossoff because they're going to vote for the Democrat in the Senate because they vote for Democrats in the Senate. I feel extremely confident in that prediction. I've been saying it for months. The polls that are better for Democrats um, show the, – the, the polls that are better for Democrats, Just it's, it's that problem being fixed. Um, the thing about Georgia is the whites in Georgia are trending way more left-wing than they have in the past. Um, Biden is going to win whites in Georgia by like 10 points more than Stacey Abrams did two years ago. Um, and I think Raphael Warnock – could very well win the runoff because in the past turnout dropped in a turnout turnout dropping in a runoff was good for the GOP because black voters didn't turn out as much and um, sort of ancestral Democrats in the rural areas didn't turn out as much. But now those voters are Republicans, and if you get the same turnout trends, the Democratic groups are going to be more uh, overrepresented. So I think Democrats can easily get both, and I do think that Raphael Warnock. I think he's a slight favorite in a runoff, given the fact that Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler have both had to say fairly um, aggressively conservative things to try and get that second spot in the runoff. Oh, yeah, and I think that because they've been so critical of each other, it's hard for the, it'll be harder for their, um, like if you're a Loeffler supporter, it'll be harder for you to come out if and, and vote in the middle of the holiday season, continuing in COVID to vote for uh, the opponent. You know what I mean? I just think that that's a, a big ask. To have yeah, party come unity back is, out. yeah, party unity is another problem for the GOP that I haven't even, like, really factored into my thinking. But, yes, it is a big problem for them. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so what about Biden in uh, Georgia? I think Biden is more likely to win than Ossoff. Um, I think Biden gets mm-hmm. 50%. In Georgia, um, he's just—he's doing so well with white voters. He's doing so well in the Atlanta metro. Um, 
he's doing well in the Georgia seventh, which uh, I know Stacey Abrams won in twenty eighteen, but um, you know the Democratic House candidate didn't win. Um, he's going to do really well in the sixth, where Lisa McBath is almost assured to win again. Um, and the thing is, is that even though Joe Biden is a Catholic, running in a, a very evangelical um, state, uh, Joe Biden, we we have a we have a map where you get results down at the county level um, with our projections. And the thing is that we have Joe Biden doing a lot better in the in the rural areas, um, both north and south, both north of the metro and then, then down to the Florida border. And part of the reason is that even though Joe Biden isn't even though Joe Biden isn't a uh, an evangelical, he is a man of faith. You can't say that Joe Biden is a bad person. And, you know, we see it in polls. We see it in the Quinnipiac poll from, I think it was last week or the week before. You know, Joe Biden is just doing better with uh, rural whites than Hillary Clinton did or Stacey Abrams did. And if he's not getting beaten as badly in the rurals, and he's doing much better in the metro, you only need to beat like, – Stacey Abrams only lost by 1.4%. It's not that hard to get that number. and. Joe Biden's getting the numbers he needs right now to win. Mm. Well, I I gotta tell you, I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on. I'll send it back to David for closing. Yes, well, Evan, you mentioned that county level map, um, which I was looking at it, and I found it just amazing. Uh, just kind of give us a, not all the nuts and bolts. Don't give away the secret sauce. But how are y'all able to get the data? to bring it down to a county level? Uh, well, that's all my partner, uh, Robert Martin. Um, he's, he's, a, he's a wizard with, the, with these things. But we have figured out that a combination of previous results in the county and then um, race and education data um, provides a good sample of, of how we're doing it. And most of these counties are, are very well correlated. Um, you're not going to see a situation where Joe Biden uh, – like, like you're not going to see a situation where for two counties with the same education, the same race, like the same racial composition and sort of like similar geography, um, you're not going to see a situation where one where one county moves 10 points to Biden and the other one moves four points to Trump. That's not how these things work. Um, we, we sort of treat the county map uh, much like we do sort of Canadian, Canadian or British constituencies. Um, these things are correlated if Joe Biden is doing well in some highly educated suburban districts is going to do well in other highly educated suburban districts. Um, same with counties. And um, he's just a wizard who's been able to put together um, really impressive um, presidential results by county and then also by congressional district. So if you're curious how Joe Biden's going to do in, say, the Georgia 7th or uh, Dan Crenshaw's district, the, the Texas 2nd, um, I know it was asked about earlier, um, you know, we have both of those on our website. And uh, again, it's his sort of tactical brilliance in bringing out this really important data um, to a level that's more uh, digestible. Yeah, the, the, what, the state that actually struck me was Tennessee. I believe it's Shelby County where Memphis is, Davidson County where Nashville is, and one and maybe two counties in Metro Memphis um, or just near Memphis that just happen to have different, different demographics that are blue, and the rest of the state, including Hamilton County with Chattanooga and Knox County with Knoxville, are all Republican, which told me, you know, kind of what a tough nut to crack Tennessee would be. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, no, the, the county map is really uh, is really quite something. I, I sometimes just find myself um, just sort of, like, clicking through and, and, and you know, um, and just taking a gander and, and sort of being confused and, and – and, uh, it's an interesting journey to figure out why is there just like this random blue county in the middle of in the middle of a sea of red. It's always a quite, it's always a fun it's always a fun game sometimes to figure these things out. Yeah, most likely a college is there if it's not a large city. Um, that is well, yeah. generally the answer. Yes. Well, um, Evan, go ahead now. If people want to read your work on your site, on Twitter, anywhere else that they can read this great analysis, tell our listeners right now. So follow me on Twitter at Scrimshaw. Um, Scrimshaw is spelled like a last name: S C R I M S H A W. Um, follow our uh, follow our site account at Lean Tossup. Um, our website is leantossup.ca. Um, the dot com also redirects you there. Um, we have articles most every day. Um, anytime there's a sort of interesting poll, I'll write my feelings about it. Um, and just follow us. Follow me on Twitter. Follow the site account on Twitter. You'll see our poll analysis. Maybe something's not worth an article, but there's an interesting commentary about a 
you know, an internal or whatever. And uh, yeah, just follow me on Twitter, follow the site account on Twitter, and then check it, check out the website. Everything's there. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, glad to have you. And maybe down the road we can have you on, and we can do the post mortem and find out what, why what happened happened. Well, hopefully the postmortem will be uh, our map just comes true, and then we're just like, well, how did you know the answer, as opposed to be having to figure out why actually Donald Trump won, because that would be a less fun podcast for me. Or, uh, <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, thanks again for coming on the show. No problem. Yes. Thank you, sir. Yes, Evan Scrimshaw of Lean Toss Up out of Canada, but they know American politics better than a whole lot of Americans. I highly recommend this uh, model. Um, I, I, you know, we'll see if it's the most accurate. I think because they're the most bullish on Democrats, we want it to be. Um, but that county level data that Robert Martin has done is just amazing. Um, it's just something you're not going to find. On other sites, they don't bring it down to that level to even, you know, discuss or debate. Um, well, it's great to have him on, and, and let's continue back on to our discussion. And um, I'm going to kind of move us just a little bit into that discussion about COVID. Um, and Donald Trump, he was in the 14-day window still. They went ahead and had the town hall. Last night, a, a major football game, uh, University of Alabama played University of Georgia. In the past, like, five days, I believe, Nick Saban tested positive. He coached the game. And I bet if we went down, we could find more examples of people testing positive. I think we've had some senators, Mike Lee, that went into the Senate hearings, um, the Judiciary Committee um, with Amy Coney Barrett's uh, nomination that have just not stayed quarantined, have resumed activities. And if we're seeing this in these high-profile areas, think how many people have a big meeting at work or some event that they feel they can't miss. How much is this going to lead to additional spread, and what kind of example are some of these high-profile people sending, Catherine? It does. It is going to lead to additional spread, and it's a terrible example. It's terrible. It's it's so frustrating. I, I know you must feel it. I feel it. My friends who have been, you know, basically in hiding for seven months feel it. You know, we've sacrificed a lot, all of us who are, you know, abiding by these guidelines. We've sacrificed a lot. We haven't seen family, friends. We've missed important um, birthdays funerals, holidays, all kinds of things. And to see these people just ignoring the guidelines and contributing to this spread is very frustrating and angering. Um, and it's no wonder that people are, you know, sort of losing their patience. And, I mean, it, it isn't a good response to just say, okay, I'm going to do the same thing, but I can sort of see why people do. Um, it's just, it's, it's um it's a it's a big disappointment in um sort of human behavior. Yeah, um Tim and I want to say that I'm not trying to frame this part of it as partisan cuz from my understanding uh Alabama football coach Nick Saban is an old school West Virginia Democrat I've been told. I don't think he's super partisan. Yes. But I've been told he's a Democrat, so this is not a, a partisan yeah. thing here, and there's probably people all around. Um, Tim, one more thing. I don't know if y'all have heard the story, but in the late 70s, there was a team that was ranked number one that was in the locker room in the New Orleans Superdome fixing to play the Sugar Bowl, and they were super, super tense. And their coach went into that locker room and said, guys, there's a billion people at China that don't care if we win or lose this game, trying to take down the temperature of the team to say, look, this isn't a life-and-death situation. Ironically, that was Coach Bear Bryant of the Alabama Crimson Tide. Um, Tim, do you think somebody in this case needs to tell that story to uh, Nick Saban to say, look, somebody else could have coached that team last night. We need to take this thing seriously. Yeah, I, I, I want to expand it even beyond Nick Saban. Um, strangely enough, the 
Southeastern Conference's rule is that if you test positive, you must then come back and test three times in succession negative to be cleared to participate in the Southeastern Conference. That That is for players and for coaches. I sort of wish they would follow the stricter guidelines of the CDC. It would help a lot if those guidelines were 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 followed more and if the guidelines of you know our you know most brilliant doctors and scientists were were adhered to and that's when we go back to the top of things um for leadership matters and that's where we've been failed at the federal government level and so um I, I think Coach Saban, obviously, although he used the SEC rules to get back on the field, I think he made a mistake in doing so. People have got to understand, if it was just you, it would be one thing. You know, harming yourself or, or possibly harming yourself by your own negligence. But there's other people to consider. He had 60 guys dressed out there to play last night. You know, there uh, there are all the people that work at the stadium. There were fans there. There's a lot of people that he's going to be around and interact with. And you've got to think about more people than yourself during this pandemic. We have to be kind to others. That's why if I have to go to the grocery store and the doctor's office, which really is the only places I go right now for for health reasons that, that I won't get into, but I'm going to put a mask on, not not to protect me from somebody else, to, but to protect them from me. And otherwise, I'm going to stay in the house to protect myself and my loved ones. And and I just wish more people would adhere to those simple things, guys. Just like how many lives could be saved. It, it, Catherine's right. It, it's really sad that, uh, that, yeah, that this even has to be addressed. It's, and uh, it's so different in that you don't have – COVID, and you want to then try to, you know, you're you're forced uh, essentially to do your job or lose it or whatever. I mean, you have to do these things because you don't have it. But when you do have it, everybody understands you're going to get sick leave. You're going to get your time to um, stay safe in quarantine. I mean, he probably could have recorded a pregame message. Even a halftime message could have been sent to the team. And he didn't call the plays anyway. Yeah. It would have been a great message to send. No, and I don't no. want to lay it all on him because I think yeah, this but... is going to be indicative of a lot of other people. And when you start times in this times 10 or 100, that's when you're going to see what we're about to see, which is the second wave they say is going to be worse than the first, really worldwide. And that is kind of disheartening because that's country's – doing it differently than us, and they're still having problems. So you can only imagine what we're going to face. Yeah, really. And, you know, uh, I, I I know a lot of politicians are screaming, open everything up, open everything up. But, but like, as much as I love college football, and, and that's well documented that I do, and Nick Saban, I'm, I'm not kicking him around. The man's a genius, you know. But those people are student athletes out there on the field. I'm sure a lot of people treat it by like big business and employment and all this and other. But when you get right down to it, those people are just kids. Uh, they're student athletes. This is a global pandemic that is really killing people. And I, I just wish we would put things into proper perspective. Let's Let's band together and get rid of this thing. Goodness. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and um, move on to another topic. And um, early voting has started in a lot of states. It, I guess, really hit home for us because it started here in Georgia, but I think it also started in Texas, and they've had some incredible numbers, both raw and percentage-wise. 
Uh, here in Georgia, we've opened it up, and the lines were incredibly long, and that was partially due to increased enthusiasm and unfortunately partially due to, um, you know, mismanagement in a lot of places. Um, Catherine, what are some of the things you've heard about in early voting, either in our state or elsewhere? Well, um, it was really bad in Georgia, especially, I think, I, I think sort of all over the state on Monday, the first day of early voting. Um, there were lo- long lines in, like, Gwinnett and Cobb and a little bit in Fulton. But by um, I went on Wednesday to the um, place I usually go for early voting, which is a small uh, Fulton County library and not far from me. And I had decided uh, before I left that if it, it, they have a small parking lot. And I thought, if there's no parking places, then I'll just drive down to the State Farm Arena and go, go there because th- there were no lines there. Um, but I got to the library, and there was, there was a parking space. So I thought, okay. And there were a few people lined up outside. Um, it took 25 minutes from the time I parked my car until I left and drove out which I thought was perfectly fine. I've waited that long in previous elections without any pandemic and even without a big, you know, general election. So that was fine. Um, Everybody was, um, the, the precautions were very well addressed and taken care of. Everyone was very cooperative and friendly. It was a very, once I got in to vote, it was a speedy process. I think one of the problems um, was this unexpected rush on that first day. Um, typically, in the past, the first week of early voting in Georgia is a little slower, and then it picks up at the as you get as the closer we get to election day. So I don't think anybody was expecting this big rush on that Monday. Part of it was because it was a holiday, and part of it I think was just real big voter enthusiasm. Um, but I think it calmed down. From what I recall of the reports, the longest lines, I think, later in the week were like two hours, which is way too long, but not 14 hours like some people waited. So I think it took a while for um, – I think one of the problems was the State Farm Arena, which is fantastic. I guess uh, some of my friends are saying they'd move to Fulton County if they knew we were going to vote in the State Farm Arena every time. <laughs> Because you get a special basketball sticker and you get to be on the floor where the Hawks play and everybody thought that was cool. But um, I think when that went online, it it overloaded the rest of the system. So that slowed things down a little bit. But they, I think they got that all uh, in shape later on in the week. Yeah, it's it's great that the Atlanta Hawks and a lot of other basketball teams, but I think Atlanta was one of the first ones, stepped up and did this. It's sad that they had to because um, that, you know, honestly, I think they've run elections better than a lot of election officials. And I know they mm-hmm. did partner then with the, the Fulton County Election Office. I was in Floyd County, a much smaller county, less than a tenth of the population. of full first day of voting, Two hours and 40 minutes, and it was the, I actually went to the location that was supposedly a little faster. Um, I noticed that one thing that I felt held me up a little more um, was when you got to – there were several tables. You had to pull down your mask to show your face to match your ID, and they also matched your signature. And those are two policies oh, that, that. put at the state level by Republicans – and they did that in Floyd. I don't know how many counties Georgia did. And um, I, that that's something that slowed things up. But I will say if that table got faster, the number of voting machines they had would have been insufficient, and then that would have been the holdup. Um, so it wasn't just that one thing. I've heard in Gordon and Polk County, uh, because the person that does hometown headlines, John Druckenmiller, we've had him on the show a while back, he said that those two counties – were like 20 minutes, the longest lines the whole time. Their elections were run much better than Floyd's, I was told. Um, Tim, you voted absentee, but what are some things you've been hearing about elections? Well, uh, 
let let me brag on my own county, which I I don't do very often. Again, for <laughs> for those who who know me, we got thirteen thousand seven hundred sixty eight registered voters in this county. We have one location with three little voting machines in it to early vote, and so far. 3,200 people have voted down there. The longest wait was about like Polk County, 15, 20 minutes. They were so organized. The same people have been running the registrar's office here like since the dawn of time, I suppose. And they, they had people lined up out on the street. They were coming out on the street and having people with clipboards get you to go ahead and fill out your paperwork so that when you walked in the door, they handed you your voting card. They got it you to a special room in the back that was bigger than the usual voting area that promoted social distancing, in and out, easy cheesy. Uh, and so I'm I'm delighted, and you know, like you know, we had 23.3 percent of our voters have already voted. Uh, looking at some of the numbers from around these other counties, uh, uh, Catherine's uh, voting Fulton good, 22.4 percent. Um, one county I wanted to ask both of you about. All these metro counties, Cobb, 24.2, DeKalb, 25%, Fulton, 22.4. Then I get over here to Gwinnett, and 17% of their voters have voted. Now, that's a significant drop because we're talking about over 560,000 registered voters. Do either of you have any idea why their turnout has been lower? In Gwinnett, I would dare say that Gwinnett is the most diverse county in Georgia, and by diverse, I mean they have people from many different countries. They probably have more language spoke spoken in different regions of that county, and it, I think it's you know it's transformed more than any other county in the past, say, decade. Um, recently, and would that make the difference? I don't know, but that is something about well, that county the, that's happened. Also, the, they don't have the traffic patterns in certain places I don't think are as good. I think a lot of people work outside the county. They live in the county. They work outside, and that, of course, factors in to be able to get back home to then vote within the early voting hours. Um, those, well, that's they, all that's speculation. That's what I was going to suggest is that um, we may have more um, essential workers in Gwinnett who are still going to work. And, yeah. and because of traffic and timing, they might not have time to get to early voting. It would be interesting to see if that um, is better next week when the vote, early voting hours are expanded from 7 to 7 yeah. during the yeah. week. Yeah. And then the other thing is um, they did have some – problems in Gwinnett earlier and their problems lasted longer so it could be that people maybe planned to go but when they heard about the lines they decided to wait until next week or wait until election day or the other one other thing that was apparently holding things up in some places was people who had requested absentee ballots and they had been mailed to them there's a whole extra step that you have to go through. If that's the case, you have to sign a, um, a declaration saying that you're not going to send in your ballot. So um, it's, I, I'm not saying that's an explanation for Gwinnett's lag, but that is one thing that did cause some delays in, in various places. Well, I was going to say the reason that uh, I had a very strong political reason under other than just the interest in the numbers for asking and that is of course that seventh district race out there that we are just salivating to you know flip that seat we need every vote we can get and when i saw those much lower numbers for gwinnett obviously i was a little concerned about that do you you think 
my concern maybe is a little misplaced or um well you know i i, I gotta say i'm concerned with every number i look at like is that high enough <laughs> we need to be you know um but i think it's legitimate to have a little bit of concern about it but i think there might be yeah. reasonable explanations and again i think it'll be interesting to see how things I'm really anxious to see next week's numbers because by rights, they should be even higher, right? Because that's the way it's been historically, the trends have been. So I'm anxious. I'm I'm interested to see how early voting goes next week with the expanded hours. And as we get closer to actual election day. Yes. And we'll keep reading uh, Michael McDonald's work, not only in our state, but in other states across the nation, well, guys, we didn't get to it all. Uh, obviously, we wanted to talk a little bit about that South Carolina race, so we'll try to do that next week, although we may have double guessed. Um, I have already booked Craig Pittman um, from Florida to discuss what, you know, as we just talked about today, is, is possibly one of the most pivotal states in the country and definitely one of the most interesting with all its media markets and uh, people from different cultural backgrounds. And we may have another guest added as well, just because we've only got so many um, Sundays before Election Day. So until then, That's right. it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, Everybody. guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world. America has created the